The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Romans 5, 12-21 Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sin. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment following one sin brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in the life throughout, through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many were made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God bless the reading of this word. Um, this morning, uh, we are we're getting into it. Uh, Paul, in, in the book of Romans, uh, deals with so, so, so much. And, um, but this, this section, this chunk, Romans 5 through 8, um, is really, in a lot of ways, um, a summary of uh, why Jesus had to die, right? Which is what we're talking about. It's what this whole series that we've been in is. And, um, and so this morning, we're going to break down this, this chunk of scriptures. Uh, we're going to reference a whole lot of other things. Um, and hopefully... Uh, we will walk out of here with a little more understanding than we walked in. Um, uh, but I want to start by, by praying, um, because here's the truth. Um, uh, as I was studying for this week, um, and learning and praying, uh, it just became more and more obvious to me um, how often, when I approach the scriptures, I bring myself into these words. And I bring my understanding, and I bring my biases, and I bring my preferences, and my limitations to the depth and the richness of what's going on here. And I think in this passage of scripture in particular, if we do that, we are in an incredibly dangerous position of misunderstanding God's purpose and point and, and Paul's primary message here, Right? And so I want us to pray, uh, hopefully, uh, as we continue on, these words, this truth will wash over all of us, um, and we can walk out of here encouraged and uplifted, because I believe that's what God gave us the scriptures for, right? So if you guys will bow your heads with me, um, let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, um, God, we're pausing right now to acknowledge that you are the creator of the universe. You are the ruler of all things, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And Father, we're desperate to understand you. That's a tough task. God, we know that we are broken. We know that we are limited, that our perspectives are hindered and clouded. And God, we know that if we are left to our own understanding, we will miss your truth. So this morning, God, we we are begging you, please grant us the blessings of your spirit. Allow your spirit to interpret these words, to reveal your truth so that our hearts will be changed. We ask these things in Jesus' name, Jesus' name, and we thank you for hearing our prayers. Amen. Okay, so some of you are probably thinking, are we really going to try to unpack Romans uh, in a short sermon? Uh, yes, we're going to try. Uh, no, it may not be short. Um, but hey, uh, we're, here we go, right? So this passage of scripture, Romans 5, uh, well, really even the verses before it, the whole couple chapters before it, um, Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8, uh, like I said before, Super, super heavy, uh, full of theology, full of uh, often confusing words, and full of really scary things like sin. Um, I don't know about you guys, but anytime someone teaches on sin, anytime I read about sin, even anytime I deal with the reality of sin, um, it's uncomfortable. Uh, it's uncomfortable for a lot of reasons. One, um, it's shining a very bright light in my darkness, and uh, the brokenness in me panics, right? Uh, none of us like to have our imperfections pointed out or to be faced with the truth that we fail not only ourselves and not only each other, but we fail the Most High God. Right? And you can't talk about sin without coming face to face with that. This morning, my goal is to connect this idea, this, this reality of sin that Paul is talking about here, with the question we've been asking for the last few weeks is, why did Jesus have to die? And so this morning, we're asking, why did Jesus have to die because of sin? Right? And Paul gets into that here in this passage of Scripture. And, um, and so what I want to do, I want to kind of review just a little bit with us and talk about how uh, this journey that we've been on as we've been walking through this series. Um, in, this, in this series, we've been learning about um, Jesus' death and his burial and resurrection, right? And we have been looking at... Um, how this crucial moment, this axis point, I'm going to reference that again and again. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, is, it's, a, it's, a, it's a point. 
when everything changes, the whole world is in an instant changed. And we've been talking about um, this idea of exile, right? And then the story of the nation of Israel, how, how time and time again, Israel found themselves in exile, in slavery, in bondage, separated from God's promises, and the story of God coming in and rescuing them and delivering them and returning them to their promised place, right? And so that story has continued on all through the Old Testament, and it's very present at the moment that Jesus enters the earth. In fact, at that moment, they've been in one of their longest extended periods of exile. Um, God has been silent for hundreds of years. And the nation of Israel as a whole, as a community, is groaning and begging God to come back and to deliver them. They are expecting a promise which was the Messiah that is full restoration to what they're supposed to be, his chosen people, his, his nation, right? Um, and this Messiah, is, he's the, the, the idea of the Messiah is present all through the Old Testament, specifically in the prophets, We've been looking at some of those things. We've been talking how God intended for things to be a certain way, and obviously they're not. God has been working from Adam through all of creation to bring about a new creation here on earth. And Jesus was the axis point where Build up, build up, build up, boom! It's happening. Okay? And unfortunately for us, as Westerners, as Americans, as thousands of years removed from Israel's story, we struggle to understand all that's going on in the nation of Israel, in their hearts. We don't know what they know. We don't really have a grasp of the scriptures and of the promises and of God's covenant with his people. And so we go into passages like this, and it's very, very easy for us to miss a lot of implied meaning, a lot of um, background and a lot of history and a lot of depth to these truths. So this morning we're talking about sin, and the first question that comes to mind, obviously, is what is sin, right? What is sin? Um, N.T. Wright helps explain it like this. Sin is not just doing things God has forbidden. It is failure, not primarily of behavior, although that usually follows, but of worship, Worshipping the wrong divinity. Instead of reflecting God's wise order into the world, you, me, us, we, reflect and then produce a distortion. Something out of joint, something unjust. That is the problem that Paul is addressing here. Ungodliness produces out of jointness and injustice. 
sin is the failure to be fully functioning, God-reflecting human beings. That's our purpose. To properly carry the status and responsibility of looking after God's world, this world, his creation, on his behalf. In order for us to do that, there's only one way. And that involves the true worship of the true God. And unfortunately, what happens time and time again, not only in Israel's history, but in each and every one of our hearts, is uh, we don't do that. We put other things in place. We get distracted. Or we don't fully trust. And because of that, we don't fulfill our purpose. We're not the royal and priestly representatives that God made us to be. We don't look anything like the Messiah. Because we fail in our primary purpose of worshiping God himself. And when we don't do that, we can't do anything else. It's an impossibility. You can't separate them from, from each other. In order to walk in obedience to the Lord, we have to be in true, steadfast worship of him. That's what a lot of the songs we sang about this morning are all about. In chapters 5, verses 20, uh, 12 through 21, so this, this chunk that we read this morning, Paul does something really interesting here, um, and, and I think that it's important for us. Um, sin, in this section of, of uh, Romans, is personified, um, meaning like it's given this, this character of being human, of being a form, of being something specific. And it's made singular, right? So instead of talking about sins plurally and about all of these things that we get wrong, Paul in this chapter transitions and starts talking singularly about, we'll call it a capital S sin. And I think that's really important for us this morning and for approaching this passage of scripture in particular, because the sin that Paul really wants us to understand is it's an active power in this world. And it's, it's literal. It's something concrete. It's not this large group of ideas or actions or all of these other things. It's not this plural chaos that a lot of times we assign to the word sin, but that makes it really difficult to deal with, right? Because when we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things that could go wrong, hundreds of, it's, it's like this, this power is dispersed and it's spread out and it's like me trying to capture the molecules of oxygen from the air in this room. It's an impossibility, right? But what Paul is doing here by condensing, by personifying sin, by bringing it into this singularity, 
I think, is he's attaching this idea of sin, this problem that we face, to a narrative that God has been speaking to the nation of Israel from the beginning. But it's something that we often miss. Sin is not just the accumulation of human wrongdoings, but of the powers that are unleashed by idolatry and wickedness. When we put things in front of God, we give those things the power that God intended for us here on earth. And we rob them from each other and from God and his glory. Right? So what we have done over all of creation from Adam up until the point of Jesus is over and over again, through our idolatry, grow this active power on earth. And it's become bigger and stronger. And what God did by giving us the law, Paul talks about here in in chapter 5, is the law was intended to pull all of that together into a focused form, into something substantial, something concrete, something that could be dealt with, right? So a lot of times we approach the law and we read things like the Old Testament and we see it as you did this wrong and you did this wrong and God like hurling thunderbolts of judgment at us. And Paul here, I believe, he's trying to point out that based on the narrative of the Old Testament, of his scriptures at this point, our Old Testament, the Torah, the prophets, he's saying, no, 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 that's not what God was doing with the law. Yes, the law points out sin. Yes, the law makes that more obvious. Yes, it, uh, what, what's the word he uses here? Um, uh, trespass, I think, is the word he uses over and over again. He talks about how, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I printed it out because it's larger and it's easier to find. Um, For many died by the trespass of one man. How much more did God's grace and uh, and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So he's talking about death. He's talking about sin. He's talking about this trespass, this, this reality, this power that's in the world that the law is pointing to, that it's, that it's wrangling together, right? That it's defining, that it's illuminating. It's one of the analogies that's often found in spirit, how, how the law, how God is a light, shining light into the darkness. Bringing it all together, drawing this force that is in control of the world into a focused point so that he can fulfill his promise to the nation of Israel and defeat it. And that's what the Messiah is coming to do. Now, the nation of Israel, um, expected a Messiah, right? They didn't necessarily expect what Jesus was. 
But Paul, specifically in this passage of Scripture, like he's resting on some things that he and the early church and the apostles had come to accept as such a concrete truth that we have to address it in order to really understand what he means here. Paul believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah that's found in the Old Testament, but he also believed he was the Son of the Most High God. Not just the Son, but his own second self. God himself, a piece of him, was present on the earth. That's significant. And if we don't understand how different that is, then it's really hard to understand why the early Christians over and over again made statements like, um, he died for our sins. We hear that sentence and it has a little bit of meaning, but for the early church, for someone that grew up with a Jewish understanding to say that God himself came to this earth to die for our sins was radical. And it carried such weight and significance that you could not walk away from it. It grabbed you and it shook you at your foundation. Are you serious? God himself came to the earth and dealt with this. The Messiah, as most Israelites believed, or in this passage of scripture, Paul calls it the gift, right? The Messiah, this deliverer, um, was going to be a deliverer like Moses. He was coming um, to lead them out of captivity, to lead them back into a promised land or God's promises. He was a coming king, a leader, anointed and placed by God himself. And they were waiting expectantly for this. It's part of why they continued to celebrate the Passover festival. Their culture was built around this. Their strength as a people to withstand oppression like Rome and Babylon and Egypt was built around the promises that God had made to them and their faith in his faithfulness. So, all of this is all tied up into the meaningfulness of Jesus. His claim that he was God's son, that he was there on behalf of them as God's representative. Jesus, as a perfect perfect representative of both God and mankind, addressed the fullness of this active power of sin on earth. Because he was fully man, a descendant of Adam, his flesh, just like each of ours, was impacted by sin. It was there, it was present, it was with him. In a way that, were he not man, it would not have been. 
But what that does and what that means is that when, when Jesus died, God is able to take this power of sin, of death in the world, in its closed in and concentrated form, and he is able to condemn it in completeness in Jesus' flesh. And that death, Jesus' death on the cross, becomes the anchor of our Christian assurance. It was the foundation for the early church. It's what they rested on. It's what they found hope and life and excitement in. But we got to make sure we catch that. Because a lot of times when we read passages like this, when we read Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, we see and we are tempted to take on the view that God punishes Jesus. And while from our earthly perspective, it's really easy to see the cross and the pain that Jesus went through as a punishment, God wasn't punishing Jesus. He was condemning the sin in his flesh. It was nailed to the cross like the song we sang. And we and he bears it no more. The dying for for sin's element represents a retrieval of this narrative that's been ever-present in Israel's story. Israel's sins resulted in exile. Exile is slavery, bondage, captivity, sometimes prolonged periods. And a new slavery to the sin, death, has been the result. But now Jesus has come to this earth to establish a new Passover. Just like the blood over the doorways of Passover for the people in Egypt, Jesus' blood covers the doorway so that death no longer has a hold on us. Sin's power has been defeated. We are covered by the blood. We are protected by Jesus' death for a purpose. And it's not just to spend eternity in heaven. That wasn't Israel's purpose. It's not our purpose. It's not why God is in the business of delivering us from exile. It was not the point of the exodus from Egypt. It's not the point of our exodus from sin. So, recapping a little. 
the story of Israel under the Torah, under the law, was designed in order to accumulate sin together, to draw it in, to package it up, to heap it into one place. And simultaneously, it's been pointing towards this Messiah, this deliverer, Israel's representative, all along. So all of the Old Testament is taking us on these two side-by-side paths, Sin is present. It's a power in this world. It's bringing it all together so that we can see it, so that we can understand it. Unfortunately, in doing that, it's gaining power temporarily. While at the same time, God is marching his people towards the promised Messiah that is going to address this power here on earth. Jesus' death, the Messiah's death, is the means by which sin is finally dealt with. The law pointed it out, drew it together, narrowed it, illuminated it. The oppressor is present with Jesus in his bodily form, in his flesh, and Jesus arrives. He acknowledges it, and he destroys it. By walking to his death on the cross so that we could be delivered. The obedient death of Jesus is the way in which a new power is unleashed in this world. So, so we had this power power of sin, controlling, dictating the world, Jesus comes in, overthrows, defeats it, and unleashes a new power on earth, which is the kingdom of heaven. That's what Paul's talking about in verses 18 and 19 here. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For justice through disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The kingdom movement, God's work in creation had all along been about this new exodus moment. All of it was building to this place. None of it was accidental. It all had meaning. It all had importance. And it all was driving all of history to this axis point where everything was going to change. Because God himself was going to change it. Family, we got to believe that. Because if we don't, we're not going to worship. We're not, we're not going to have faith. We're not going to trust. Do you believe that God loved you enough, loved me enough, loved his creation enough to come to the earth himself, his second self, his son Jesus, and to deal with, with the powers of this world. If you do, 
what are you doing about it? If you don't, please join us. I'd love to explain that as best I can. Our leaders would love to explain that as best they can. It's a journey. We're not going to figure it out over a night. I've read this passage of scripture probably a hundred times in my, my Christian life. And I'm still learning new things about it. But it's worth it. It's worth it. When the Messiah died, when Jesus died, you, me, anyone who belongs to the Messiah, anyone who is a member of his body, died at the same time. The sin in our flesh was nailed to that cross along with Jesus's. We were there with him. And in the same moment that God destroyed and condemned that power in Jesus's flesh, he did it for you and me. He did it for our families. He did it for the past and the future. But the really exciting thing is, that's not where the story stops. Right? It didn't end with Jesus dying on the cross. There was more. Because the purpose of defeating sin again, wasn't just to destroy it. God has a plan for us. He has a purpose for us. And he wants us to walk in that. And so Jesus rose from the grave to start a movement on this earth that we have been called to be active participants of. The Messiah died, and he was risen to new life. His resurrection is the inauguration of the age to come. It was the establishment of God's kingdom on earth that will span into eternity, but is present now. God doesn't want us to just quit and long for perfection in eternity. He redeemed us for today. Humans are rescued so that the proper verdict of the law could be fulfilled in us so that we would no longer live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We are rescued in order to be glorified so that we can resume the genuine human existence, our true purpose, being royal priests, ambassadors of God here on earth to all of his creation. And that's what Paul's talking about here. It's what he continues on in chapter 6 and, oh man, the heaviness that is chapter 7. 
chapter 8. He's going on and on. Not about... Sin because he wants us to feel guilty and feel burdened and to feel insufficient. He wants us to understand sin because he wants us to understand he has wiped it clean. And he calls us his children. And he calls us royal. And he wants us to be active in his creation. He restores us to that proper place. And that is why it's so important for us to understand, A, who he is, why he had to die, B, what he died for, What is sin? We need to understand it. The law has great purpose there. If we don't understand what God saved us from, we're not going to praise him adequately. We're not going to celebrate that deliverance. We haven't been held in bondage and in captivity. If we weren't slaves, then how do we know what we're being rescued from? And that's the purpose of the scriptures so that we can understand that there's so much more happening. Family, as we continue on in this this, um, series, as we push towards Easter, my hope, my heart, I, I think I can speak for Ellis in this, is that by the time we reach Easter Sunday, there will be a joyous celebration in our hearts like we have never experienced before. Because we finally understand why Easter is so important. We finally know why he had to die. And not only do we know it in our heads, we know it and we've accepted it and we have welcomed it into our hearts. And it's changing us. Because that's what God intended. He made us for a purpose. He made you for a purpose. He made me for a purpose. And I don't know about you guys, but I want to live in that. There's freedom there. There's a strength, there's a power there that can overcome the darkness of this world, that can overcome sin, that can overcome everything because greater is he that is in me than anything in this world. But it starts with our worship. It starts with us identifying the ways in which we have welcomed idolatry into our hearts. And that takes examination. Because it's tricky and deceptive. And there are dozens of ways where even in our approach to the scriptures themselves, we have continued to feed 
the power of idolatry. Because we're not approaching them with the trust in the Most High God. We are bringing our preferences and our biases. We're missing the truth. And we're failing to worship Him properly. So this morning, hopefully, as heavy as all of this is, we can walk away from this from this time of self-examination, from this reality that there is a power in this world with the comfort and the encouragement of the promise of God that he has defeated it. Are you ready to walk in that power? Are you ready to trust it when times are difficult? It's why Paul can make statements like, I take joy in my sufferings because he trusted that God had defeated evil. I want to do that. I want us to do that together. I think it's what our city needs. I think it's what my neighbor needs. I think it's what your neighbors need. So this morning we're going to pause here. There's a lot more to come in this, in this series. We're going to um, participate in uh, the, the act the, of the discipline of communion. And I want you guys, as you, as you go into this this morning, as you walk up to the table, as we take the bread that Jesus said was a symbol of his body, as we take the juice that is a symbol of his blood, let's reflect on that this morning. When we join into that, when we participate in that, let's remember that this act that we are reminding ourselves of was the catalyst axis point where sin was defeated. So, if you call yourself a Christian, if you claim to be one with the Messiah, this table, it's an important moment for us. Each and every time we do it, If you're not there yet, you're probably not going to understand how significant it is. But we want to help you understand that. So ask your friends, ask your neighbors, ask whoever it was that brought you here this morning. We want to help you. So we're going to sing, we're going to do communion. We're going to celebrate, we're going to join into God's mighty work through his son, his second self, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We're going to break the bread. We're going to speak truth to each other. On the table, there are little prompts where you say and you remind each other verbally, out loud, everyone at the table, this is his body. This is his blood. Follow the prompts. I don't have them memorized.
Say them to one another. Celebrate what it means.